a bust out basically is you suck all the money out of a company and then you leave. So it's a mafia term, actually. <laughs> and I think it was first used by the mafia. If you make all the money out of your business and then you uh, set fire to it and then the insurance pays you. Hello, Internet. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast. If you're enjoying this channel, the best thing that you can do is like, subscribe, comment and share. That's how the channel will grow and that's how we can get even bigger and better guests on. So before we get started today, I've just got a few short messages. First off, the first round of crowdfunding for my book has now come to an end. Thanks to everyone who contributed. However, I still have about 15 spaces left for names in the acknowledgements, so if you want to pre-order the book and get your name in there as part of telling the story of the GameStop saga, you'll find links to pre-order the book in the description below. Next up, I have two sponsors for today's show. First off, we have ExpressVPN, the internet's number one VPN. You can protect your browsing data from your internet provider and from prying eyes by going to ExpressVPN today and getting 35% off of 12 months of ExpressVPN. You can use it for privacy, safety, or just to watch Netflix shows from another part of the world. You will be absolutely stunned by the amount of extra content you can access just by setting your location to somewhere new. Secondly, I have a wonderful podcast to tell you about. But no, it's not this one. Rico and the Man is a New Jersey meets California no-holds-barred podcast about the entertainment industry, where former college buddies Rob Tregler and Peter Martino both slaughter and praise Hollywood and the film industry. The two bounce really well off of each other, sliding effortlessly between childish banter and in-depth commentary and analysis. And for listeners who love Kenny G, one of the latest episodes... Spider-Man, No Way to the Toilet, not only contains one of the funniest and most wide-ranging discussions of the highly anticipated new Spider-Man film. Why does Doctor Strange seem so off in the trailer? Will Tobey Maguire cameo in the film? And why the sheer number of other superhero films allow for filmmakers to be more creative with the ideas now. But it also includes music from saxophone legend Kenny G. Now, that's not to be confused with the hedge fund manager that Twitter was calling for the arrest of. Hashtag Ken Griffin lied. Rico and the Man covers the latest entertainment news while keeping a firm foot in the Hollywood that was. With special guests, best of lists, trivia and an attempt at comedy, Rico and the Man is the perfect distraction for your pesky priorities. You'll find links for everything in the description below. Anyway, here's the podcast. Um, so hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I am here with Josh Cosman, author of The Buyout of America. Welcome to the show, the show Josh. Sure, thanks, Josh. Yeah, I yeah, this is going to get fun. Josh, Josh. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as I mentioned before we'd started, uh, I had got in touch with you after I saw your, your book, The Buyout of America, and after quite a lot of people in the GameStop community have been looking at bust outs and private equity and, and companies like Bain Capital. And so I decided that, yeah, it would be useful for both me and the community to, to try and get uh, like a true expert in to, to talk about this sort of thing. So 
Um, why don't we start with uh, what exactly is private equity? Sure. So private equity, the way that most people describe it are leverage buyouts. So the private equity, the leverage buyout community in the early 90s changed their name to private equity because LBOs got a bad rap. Well, maybe deserve it bad rap, but it had a negative connotation. And it was very clever. So technically, private equity would include anything that's not public equity. It would include venture capital. It would include real estate. But really, when we think of venture capital, we think of venture capital. Uh, private equity is really leveraged buyouts. That's the way to think about it. Okay. And so what is a leveraged buyout then? Yeah. So, <laughs> no problem. So a leveraged buyout is when a firm buys a company using the company's assets as collateral. So think of you or I buying a house. Um, we put 20% down, let's say, borrow 80%, the house is ours. The difference with a leveraged buyout, and that's the same way to think about it, is they put about 20 to 25% down, maybe 30%, but usually nothing more than that. And the money that's borrowed to finance the rest, the house borrows the money, not the buyer. So if we buy a house and we lose our jobs and we don't have the money, our house will go into foreclosure. In their, and, and we, go, we declare bankruptcy. If, if a buy private equity firm buys a company, which happens, of course, the company can't pay the debt, the company will go bankrupt, the private equity firm will not. But that's a leverage buyout. You're buying a company on leverage, um, and it's a nice marketing tool to call it private equity because it makes it look like they're providing equity. In reality, they're not providing much equity at all, and they're putting the company in deep debt. Okay. So... I guess the, the the first the first question I then have about this is where where did this idea come from? Is it has it been around as long as the the mortgage has been around as such, or is this something that's like a, a new invention of of finance in the way like a an, an MBS hasn't been around as long as mortgages have? It really started in the mid to late seventies. Um, guys like Henry Kravis, who's still around, KKR, uh, was one of the pioneers. Um, and they started as an experiment. So the reason why leverage buyouts tend to be profitable for the buyer, one big reason, is because if you put a company in debt, that company doesn't have to pay, they can take the interest they're paying on their debt off of their taxes. So companies acquired in LBOs pay less than half of the taxes than a peer does who just has a modest amount of debt. So they thought you could buy a company that has dependable revenue that you don't have to do much to, or let's say a widget maker, for lack of a better way of putting it, load it down with debt, pay less in taxes, resell it, you can do really well. And in the early days, um, that did happen. Uh, there was a greeting card company, uh, American Greetings, bought by William Simon, the ex-Treasury Secretary of the U.S., in the late 70s, early 80s, he made a fortune through a leverage buyout. So the first leverage buyouts generally did very well. And then the industry got bigger and bigger. Michael Milken funded a lot of LBOs. Um, the Michael Milken of Drexel, who will end up going, ended up going to jail. Um, and the problem is, once you have too many leverage buyouts, well, you can't, it's harder and harder to find widget makers 
or companies where if you put them deep in debt, there's no damage. Um, chaos theory does happen in business all the time. Life's unpredictable. Um, so that's basically what happened. We became very big in the late 80s. Um, we had a financial crisis. Milken goes to jail. They go away. They rebrand themselves as private equity. And um, they have become, over time, uh, bigger, much bigger than they were in the late 80s. In the U.S., private equity firms own companies employing about one out of every 10 Americans in the private sector. So they're that big. They are not where you are in England. They're not as large, but they're certainly important. Um, and they have become global. They weren't really global in the late 80s. So private equity has become very, very big. Um, and um, it all started from an experiment in the late 70s. Um, and private equity firms, even though a lot of their companies go bankrupt because of the fees they charge, they rarely lose money and it's proved to be a very profitable part of Wall Street. Okay. It seems like the system, that, that particular system is being set up to encourage companies to go into debt and then yes. end up paying more taxes. Is that, is that one of the, the kind of the problems that this creates? I think so. The tax code, and this is not new, but the tax code is set up to encourage the U.S. tax code anyway. And that actually is true in much of the world. It is set up to encourage debt. And the theory may have been, whenever it was set up, long time ago, 100 years ago, um, to encourage companies to borrow money to build a plant, uh, hire more workers. Mm -hmm. But it's not, you can borrow money for other reasons. Um, and And that's so, so yes, this was this was really started as a giant legal tax loophole, and it's emerged into something much, much bigger. And um, as you probably know from from uh, from reaching out to me, I would say something much more destructive. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the record proves that. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yes, it's it, it really started out as a tax loophole, and it's something that any government could close pretty easily. But um, although it's been talked about in the U.S. and other countries, um, most large companies have not done it. Okay, so um, you said that the originally it had been quite successful in a way that there were there were there was a couple of like a, some examples where uh, the company was able to handle the debt that they were able to grow, and then the the, the private equity firms or LBOs had had then sold it on at a profit. Uh, but the problem was. As, that they ran out of good companies to do this to, basically, or ones that could at least handle the debt. Is there any other problems in your mind with this practice, aside from the fact that they're targeting companies that can't handle it? Well, um, typically, not that you've asked, but just because it's, it's, it's a misconception about private equity. What they would like to say, what they do say when they're criticized, is we buy troubled companies. That is not true. Um, they typically buy companies with dependable cash flow. They are not looking for fast-growing companies, but banks finance LBOs. Banks are not going to finance a company that they think is going to go into bankruptcy in a year. Generally, these are dependable companies, like Morrison's in the UK, which is being targeted right now. They like companies with lots of assets, with real estate, that have a leading market share. They are not looking for troubled companies. There is a small subsection of private equity that does that, but that's a pretty small subsection. Generally, that's not what they do. Um, and besides the fact that they put companies in deep debt, I guess another thing that bothers me intellectually and as a journalist 
is you are putting the hands of a lot of the economy in a few firms. You know, even if it's 50 large Wall Street private equity firms, a few being in London, uh, mostly being on Wall Street, um, you're getting not a diversity of thought. You get a company that's not in their community uh, where guys who run these firms can do pretty cutthroat things that maybe if they went to the same country club as people in that community, they would not be doing. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's, it's consolidating wealth in the hands of a few. Um, and whether one is on the left or the right, I think that that's something that disturbs a lot of people, and I think it should disturb a lot of people. And it's not because they're growing businesses. Whatever one thinks of Jeff Bezos, and you can, I think there are intelligent opinions you can have on either side of that argument. Bezos built Amazon. There wasn't something there. He created something that now is filling a big need. He also might be taking advantage of small businesses in the process. But whatever, at least he's creating something. A KKR, a Blackstone, a Sinven, they're not creating anything. They're buying existing companies, sucking the life out of them sometimes to varying degrees. Sometimes the companies survive. Typically, they're not as good as they were when they bought them. That, that I showed in my book. Almost all the time, the company is worse off. Some of the time, they go bankrupt. Um, and they are making money because if you buy a company, putting little money down and resell it, even for the same price, if, you, if that company's paid down its debt or much of its debt, you're going to make a nice profit. And they collect very nice fees from their investors. So I think private equity firms often de destroy value. And again, I think the record shows it. It doesn't even have to be anecdotal at this point. Um, and they lay off workers because you're putting a lot of debt on a company. It's all about increasing cash flow because you put a lot of debt on the business. Um, so I think there's a lot of reasons not to like private equity. Um, with, where with Bezos or Walmart or pick your, you know, Facebook, um, there are reasons to like or not like them, but you, you cannot say Zuckerberg didn't build a business. You know, you can't say the Waltons didn't build a business with Walmart. Um, and customers do pay lower prices than they would at competitors. Um, again, you could, you could argue we should have lots of small businesses and Walmart destroys them and that's not good for the economy. They don't pay their workers right. You can make those arguments, but did the Waltons build something? Yeah, they sure did. Okay, so there's a couple of things I want to ask about here. So, um, how do you think they're away, they're able to get away with the narrative that they're buying troubled companies when you've kind of laid out that that's really not the case? Or because it also seems like this wouldn't work with troubled companies, as, as you kind of alluded to, that 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 they wouldn't be able to handle the the cost essentially. That a troubled company is not in a position to have a leveraged buyout. No, they're not. Um, it, it, it's it, it's a spin that helps. I, I think the reason they've been able to get away with it, to answer your question directly, is I don't think a lot of people in the media, I, I think this is changing, by the way, but I think historically, not a lot of people in the media, and I think not a lot of people, not a lot of regulators have chosen to really examine private equity, or it comes in it, you know, it happens once in a while, then it kind of dies down. Um, people who now run private equity firms include former Treasury secretaries, includes Tim Deitner in the U.S. Um, it's really, and, and they 
they donate a lot of money to campaigns on both parties, left and right. Um, so I think they have done a pretty good job with the narrative. Now, what is changing is we're in a different world now. And although it's dating us back a little bit, when Mitt Romney ran for president, um, there was a real examination of private equity, and I don't think it made him look very good or the industry, and I still think it's reeling a bit from that. Okay. So another – like some of the some of the problems you, you have identified there with this is the, the consolidation of ownership of companies, that, that it's basically taking from, – from my reading of what you've said, at least anyway, it's taking companies and instead of – using the stock market to get people to invest in firms that they believe in, that, you know, they like the fundamentals, you know, if people like the stock um, and they're, they're turning them into like a tool for the exploitation of the financial industry. Yeah, I think that's basically right. And if we think of something like GameStop that you just brought up, um, as an investor, you can choose to invest or not invest in GameStop. Mm -hmm. Um, Private equity firms typically buy companies, often public companies, and take them private. Now, they try to buy and sell companies within five years, and sometimes the exit is an IPO. But generally speaking, their companies are privately held. So you, Josh, or anybody, unless you have can invest $100,000, and which means you have, enough to have to have a net worth of well over a million, um, you can't invest directly in these firms, and you can't participate in the growth. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the GameStop story is, is, is changing that with the people who uh, they're calling it, um, what's the term, investumers. Um, so they're, yeah, so they're both investing in the company and then spending all their money at that company to ensure its survival. It's a hilarious, which is a hilarious circle. It's brilliant. <laughs> uh, but the you mentioned there uh, the fees that, that private equity firms will take. So they're they're coming in. Um, with the the idea that they're going to save this company, whatever it happens to be, uh, Blockbuster, Sears, um, Rue Twenty One. I think you've also um, talked about it as well before. Um, so, what are the what are the fees that they're charging? Are they taking bonuses out of the company? Or are they like charging the company for the privilege of them having their vast expertise? It's a little. It's, it's all of the above, kind of. But the biggest fee is they charge their investors a 2% fee every year. So let's say they raise a billion-dollar fund, just to give it a round number. Okay. They might, the, the general partners of that firm might put up 2% of the capital. Then they collect 2% fees per year. Um, you can see within three or four years, they make money no matter what. And that's really not that much more complicated than that. Now, they'll also make a 20% cut on the profits of any company they buy and sell. Um, so often they will make a profit. Sometimes companies go bankrupt and they don't. But either way, the private equity firm or the buyout firm does not lose. Um, as long as they're collecting that 2% fee, they may not be able to raise another fund again if their returns are not good, but they make money regardless. Okay. This seems like a good deal. If I had enough money, I definitely think I would get in. It seems like you don't have to do very much or even be that good at your job. <laughs> 
Well, that's why some of the brightest on Wall Street have, over the last 30 years, end up at private equity firms, including treasury secretaries and the such. Um, this is a big part of the reason why. Um, and it's easy to look at that and not look at the destructive path that's created by their investments. It's easy to look at the money. One of the things in my book, The Buyout of America, which um, I thought was interesting to me, was when I would talk to people who sold companies to private equity firms, um, including companies that later failed, you know, I, I asked, trying to be nice about it, did you do any due diligence on, for example, Bain Capital in one case? And he said, well, Bain gave me these three people to call from companies they own. Did you call them? No. Why didn't you call them? I saw the money. I wanted to sell and I saw the money. So it, it, it was surprising to me how little due diligence is done. So why? Yeah. Do you think? Do, do you think it's just solely the money that they just see the dollar signs and then they're like, "All right, I'm fine with this." I, I I'm not cynical enough to think that most people who who, who built a business, a family, an even an individual it doesn't have to be a family. I think most people who really run a business care about the people and the business. They may lay off people. Maybe they don't pay high salaries, but they built the business. It's part of them. So I think if they really knew, hey, chances are if I sell the company to Carlisle, this company has a good chance of struggling, perhaps even going bankrupt. And a lot of people here are going to get laid off and it's going to be bad for the company. I think if they really knew that, you would see less sales to private equity firms. Um, and I do think that's becoming a problem now. I think the reputation of private equity has been damaged over the last five to 10 years, but there's a lot of momentum still. Um, but yeah, I think most, most of the time, I, I, I think if people were clear headed, they wouldn't sell. Now the exception is when private equity firms buy public companies. Because public companies have public shareholders. If they offer a high enough price, you got to sell. And what's happening in England right now um, is you have companies that have assets that are worth more than the company itself, if you add the real estate. So um, private equity firms are running to England to buy large public companies and break them up. And again, they're public companies. So as much as uh, perhaps a CEO might not want to sell, you offer a 25% premium, and if nobody else is there, that's pretty hard to reject. Yeah, I mean, not that the UK needs any more um, massive predatory financial firms. Um, the, <laughs> I mean, I think we're we're like right at the centre in some some senses sometimes of just all of the worst practices you can possibly imagine. <laughs> Um, free market and the pro I mean, I thought I put in the, the book was published in 09, but it's still true today that I think if I was a member of parliament and I spoke to a few members of parliament, I would be particularly worried for one additional reason that I wouldn't be if I was in the US, although I think it's very destructive here as well. Okay. In England, it's usually US private equity firms, whatever profits they make are going to US investors. Um, Basically, no one or very few people from England are benefiting. At mm. least in the U.S., you can make the argument that pensions, who are some of the larger investors in private equity firm, firms, 
okay, they do well on their on their on their returns. By the way, they don't do as well as you think. But if they do do well, okay, at least they did well. In in the case when a US PE firm is buying a British company, nobody is benefiting in England. The investors aren't basically aren't British. The PE firm's not British. Uh, and the people who are going to be losing are the company and its workers most of the time. I mean, one of the problems we have in the UK, at least that I'm very familiar with, is the the offshoring of a lot of, uh, of profits, um, especially when financial firms get involved. Uh, we get a, a lot of services sort of outsourced to companies that have many, many haven tax havens to sort of funnel the money off through so that the UK government will pay money for a, a company to provide a certain service. And then it goes off into the Cayman Islands and through Jersey and Guernsey and um, the Virgin Islands and then the, the, the different solicitors and accountants and lawyers and um, holding companies will all take their little sort of slither of money. And then by the time it actually gets to to the you know the the public who are meant to be getting the service there's no money left for the service itself um which is yeah there's a there's a great book about it called um you, you perhaps you've read it actually it's called the finance curse i've not read it um I'll, i would honestly really really highly recommend it um i did an interview with the with the author his name's nicholas shackson um and essentially he's like arguing against the financialization of our economy in the same way that you're sort of you're, you're raising quite a lot of similar points in in the the predatory nature of how firms come in and it's no longer about the company itself it's about making profits for the the firm who's taken it over and it, it's kind of yeah destroying small companies um in a way and yeah leading to all of our best and brightest being sucked into the finance industry rather than say tech or science or or anything like that and he sort of argues that it's become this monstrous drain on all of the developed uh, economies of the world where finance in the same way that say like oil or, or copper or like a, a resource curse would affect um countries and other parts of the world that are blessed or cursed with <laughs> Yeah, uh, mass re massive resources that the finance industry in places like Britain and America is doing the same. Um, so, yeah, definitely recommend that to you. It's amazing to me here in the U.S. and, and, and certainly globally, too, um, in the Western world, how uh, politicians, the media make, I guess I'm bringing them up again, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, evil. And, 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 and you know, some of those companies pay very little in taxes. I think there's fair critiques to make. Also, most of us don't want to be spied on. But saying that, these are the evil guys, apparently, right? Or this is the way they're portrayed. And uh, the, the Bains, the KKRs, the, you know, the private equity firms, and uh, mostly U.S.-based, are kind of left alone. So um, here, um, there's a, you probably know there's a giant budget package that President Biden is putting together and trying to ram through Congress that would have $3.5 trillion of stimulus. And to raise that money, they'd be taxing the rich more. There'd be a higher corporate tax rate. Um, they initially were going to get a, get rid of what's called carried interest for private equity, um, which is a no-brainer. Um, and even that got watered down. Um, so it's just it's very hard politically or or there's just not the will amongst a lot of US politicians to do something 
where there is will to get tough with the Facebooks of the world. And again, I'm not here to defend the tech industry, but to me, there are arguments for the tech industry. There are also arguments saying they should do more and shouldn't be as monopolistic. There's an argument for Google. Um, I don't see, I see very little argument. Um, and I know I'm saying KKR's name again, but I can name 20 firms. You know, there, there's an argument, there's not an argument for Blackstone. You know, and, and, and when a Blackstone in America is buying hundreds of thousands of single family homes, charging lots of rent, taking home ownership away, not being a good landlord, not taking care of the properties and milking as much cash as they can. It seems to me that has a much worse effect on our economy and real people than, uh, you know, Facebook owning Instagram. And I'm not saying that Facebook and Instagram ought to be together. Maybe they shouldn't be. Maybe that maybe that that, that should be on rollback. But in the big scheme of things, I don't know. To me, Blackstone, KKR, Apollo, CBC, name your firm. Um, if you really delve into it, which I've done over time, to me that's ten times more destructive. And they cheat on their taxes. I mean, legally cheat. They're not doing anything illegal. <laughs> That, that, that's the worst part about it. There's nothing illegal about what they're doing, but they, they, they pay much less in taxes their companies do than their peers. We actually encourage this behavior. So to me, it seems pretty insane. And, and if you're curious, you know, what the carried interest debate in the U.S., which gets the media attention is, PE firms are saying when we make money by buying and selling a company, we should be able to pay on our profits, we should pay an ordinary income tax rate. What the and that would be capital that that that's that's the carried interest argument because which I just walked you through they get two percent no matter what every year and I'm not even counting the fees they charge their companies I think many would argue what what risk are you taking there's no risk so whatever profit you know you, that should be taxed not at capital gains but an ordinary income mm -hmm. and considering the fees they make which you know is not debatable what's the risk. So this should be just a no-brainer thing, um, and uh, they really can—they've continually succeeded in fighting against even that, and that is really the least of what should be reformed. And even in Biden's proposal, Biden being a supposed progressive, even he is backing down on that. Brian, I get like a gear. So I, I've been openly. Um, a big critic of of the tech industry. Um, so my first book that I wrote about Brexit was very much focused on um, how yeah Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, Google are sort of slowly destroying our society. <laughs> um, but it seems like you're you're basically saying that you believe that they're uh, they're like the the small fries here in terms of who is causing the most damage to to yeah to the economy and to to the wider sort of prosperity of the nation uh you're which is a really interesting perspective and not one that i've heard expressed very much like i mean i've seen people sort of vilify the two of them in isolation but i've never seen anyone come out and say look like the finance industry is just demonstrably worse uh, <laughs> do you feel like yeah. I mean, at this point, I guess an Amazon is not small fry anymore, nor is Google, but 
I, I just think, again, I think it's fair to critique both. Um, if one reads what I write, I critique them. I mean, I think it's fair to critique them. But I, but I just think, comp, you know, they're the bad guys. Um, not when you compare them to who are the real bad guys, in my view, or some of. I'm sure there's bad guys I don't know about. But the bad guys <laughs> I focus on are very, very big. They're behind the scenes, but they're very big, very powerful. And I just, I, I, I think once one studies them, so in the book, at, at the end, there's an appendix. Few people will read the appendix. That's okay. But the appendix shows, I, I took a study of the biggest bias of the 80s, the 90s, and 2000s. And you find in about half the time, if you go through each decade, these companies end up bankrupt. And these are the biggest LBOs. Uh, this is Caesars, the large gaming company. Um, important companies like Energy Future Holdings that provides energy for Texas. Um, these are big, important companies. And about half of them end up going, well, half of them in the 2000s and in the 80s went bankrupt. In the biggest buyouts of the 90s, they did not go bankrupt because the economy was booming. But if you compared them against their peers, their peers um, uh, did much, much better um, in most of the cases. In six cases I found in the 90s, the peers clearly grew while the PE-owned companies did not. Three cases were mixed. In one case, I think the PE firm helped the business. Um, one but case. generally, it's just, yeah. But generally, it's, 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 it's very destructive. There was a World Economic Forum or Davos study conducted by a private equity big shot, Joe Rice, Clayton Dubley and Rice, that was supposed to exonerate the industry, and it did exactly the opposite. So it was kind of hidden, or at least somewhat hidden. But it showed the PE firms lay off a lot of people compared to their peers, maybe 6 7% of workers over four to five years. And again, from my work, they don't improve the earnings. They may improve the earnings short, short term, but if you look in a real world life, uh, do they improve their companies against uh, compared to their peers? It's not even a wash. They clearly do worse. Okay, yeah, because I guess that's what you're looking for in a in a company. You want them to you want them to grow, be more prosperous. You obviously want them to profit, but you want them to provide like steady long term employment for more and more people as a company grows, rather than sort of yeah have the money funneled out and spent on handling debt basically um i mean there's a big here and in england i think there's a big progressive move to tax share buybacks i'm not necessarily against that by the way but like those share buybacks are negative because you're not using the cash for something constructive except for lifting your stock but buying a company with debt and paying less in taxes that's okay like to one to me just seems at least, at least share buybacks should help the stock, should help shareholders. Mm -hmm. You could argue they should do something better with the money or at least pay a tax on it. I get that argument, but they're ignoring the giant argument in the corner. Okay. So um, I was hoping we could go into like a little more detail uh, in terms of like the damage that you think that these companies have done. So yeah, so how many or how much, yeah, basically how much damage do you think that the leverage buyouts and private equity firms have done to the economy over the past sort of 30, 40 years? It's a little hard to clearly quantify it, but because they own companies employing one out of every 10 Americans, again, the number wouldn't be quite as large in England, but it's large. I don't know what it is. I never really dug into it, and the studies haven't been done by academics to show, but I'm guessing it's not that far off. 
But here, um, I, I certainly think that there is a lot of evidence when we, in the pandemic, when a lot of retailers went bankrupt, um, a, a good percentage based on studies not done by me, uh, more than half were owned by private equity firms. And it was clear they were completely unprepared because when earnings even took a dip, well, there's no cash reserve. You owe all this money. So these companies went bankrupt. Um, uh, since you brought up Bain before, a Toys R Us that used to be owned by Bain. It's, it's, uh, then, then it became owned by KKR. Uh, but a Toys R Us, for example, moves slowly into the Internet space because that takes money. Um, they actually outsourced it for a time to Amazon, if you can believe it. And uh, when and, and, and they busted out. Um, but during the recession, there were a lot of companies um, that ended up going bankrupt, a lot of retailers, and uh, roughly half were owned by private equity firms. And it's just another example of how any change in, in, in earnings, a slight dip, and there was more than a slight dip in the early months of the recession, and they just don't have the wherewithal to withstand it. So these are essentially weak companies. So most private equity-owned companies, to be fair, do not go bankrupt. Um, but they are zombie companies. Uh, typically, they are not investing in technology. You know, it's um, just because I just wrote about it. It's an on-semiconductor uh, losing the contract to make chargers for Apple because a newbie came along that using a different technology that has smaller chargers and uses less electricity. And good decision by Apple, but why wasn't the private equity-owned company doing that? Um, there's a large company owned by private equity called First Data in the credit card business. Square came out of nowhere and advanced, you know, with technological advances, moved the industry 10 steps forward. Why wasn't First Data doing that? Well, I think the easy answer is, if person, people look into it, A, the company has a lot of debt. B, the company's ownership is looking to buy and sell in five years. And three, the company is run by essentially investment bankers who are now private equity guys who are not thinking long term. They're thinking, how do I increase my cash flow and get out? Um, and is there a widget maker in England or here where that can work? Yeah, of course there is. But that's the minority. And it's a small minority. Typically, leverage buyouts hurt businesses. Okay. So you're basically saying that, that the when a company is taken over by, by private equity, that it is less resilient, kind of unable to handle even small dips in the market, and probably most importantly, that they're unable to to invest in new technology, transform themselves as the whatever industry they are in changes, evolves. And this is something obviously that's been especially prevalent um, over the past sort of 20 years is the, the tech space has sort of transformed so many industries here. So you're saying that this has caused a lot of these huge retailers um, like Toys R Us uh, to basically fail to move forward as the industries have gone because they have no money in reserve to spend. Exactly, or very little. Like just, just because I just wrote about it very recently, um, uh, Topps baseball cards. So I don't know in England, you guys might not care about our boring sport of baseball, but Topps baseball cards are a tradition in America. Uh, private equity firm Madison Dearborn owned Topps for years. Um, didn't do so well with it, um, but just kind of like Major League Baseball keep using us to make cards. 
Well, then Fanatics came out of the woodwork. Fanatics based here, but global, growing as fast as anything, uh, goes to Major League Baseball around the back of Fanat of, of Tops. Says, "Hey, Major League Baseball, we'll share, we'll we'll cut you in. You'll get an, the players will get an ownership of the company. We're going to move forward with NFTs. We've got all these great plans. We're going to have a role in online gambling. Uh, throw the Tops contract is coming up. Throw them overboard." And Major League Baseball, which is usually pretty old school, did. And suddenly Tops, that was going to go public through a SPAC, that SPAC uh, ended up canceling their deal. Uh, this is all within the last month or two. And okay. Tops is in real trouble. Um, and it's a perfect example of a private equity firm laying on its laurels, not looking forward. Um, I spoke to people for that, for the story, um, who were very close to the situation and not at Fanatics. Um, and I could look. I looked at the financials. Topps was investing one million dollars a year in R and D. They were generating five to six hundred million in revenue. They weren't doing much. Um, in fact, one of the pitches of the CEO of Topps, who was going to join the SPAC and keep running Topps, was now we'll be free to spend money. Well, they didn't. He didn't have time. The industry caught up with him, and I think. Industries, life, technology catches up with a lot of companies that end up passing private equity firm-owned companies by. But you know what? The pie-up firm that owns uh, Tops took out a giant dividend from their company, had the company borrow more money to pay them a giant dividend. They're going to make money regardless. I'm sure they're not, they don't like what happened, but they win anyway. Mm. But if you worked at Tops, this would stink. Yeah. If you worked at Tops, you, you might now lose your job. Tops is in real trouble. Props to fanatics. But, uh, again, it hurts a, a, a very iconic U.S. company. Mm. I mean, I guess the one part of my brain is saying, well, at least this is encouraging sort of new companies to try and come in and disrupt the space and, and you know, over like – push technology forwards in in ways that perhaps larger companies wouldn't be able to. But then, I mean, it's a very callous way for one side of my brain to think about it because these are people's jobs and livelihoods and careers that we're talking about. And they can't just easily jump from one to the other. And even if they can, uh, there's that period of uncertainty. They might lose, especially in America, they might lose their health care. Uh, it's it's kind of, it seems that even if that is encouraging innovation in a way that it's making the world very unstable and uncertain for large parts of the market and for yeah, people trying to navigate the, the job market. It does provide opportunity, but, but generally there's such a big part of our economy. It's, I, I, I think it's, it's generally bad news. And, 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 and I guess it's not the theme I thought I'd be talking about, but um, I, I, I guess a, a guy like, like Jonathan Rubin, who owns Fanatics. I think it's Jonathan Rubin, for sure. But anyway, he also owns a piece of the Philadelphia 76ers. I, I think guys like that, again, is a reporter who tends to be on the critical side of things. I think we ought to, in the press and in the investment community, be look at these guys critically. But they're building something. There's also a part of me that respects that. There's part of me the respect since we've spoken about GameStop, the GameStop shareholders who are trying to learn about GameStop and are not relying on analysts and hedge funds. Um, 
whether it makes sense or not, I don't know, but at least they're trying. Um, as opposed to private equity guys who typically don't like, they, they wouldn't like a, a guy like Ruben. In fact, I've been told this directly. I mean, they want CEOs who say, yes, sir, no, sir. I'll provide weekly updates on EBITDA, profit numbers, and we're going to stick to the numbers. We're going to stick to the script. Um, that's not very entrepreneur. In my view, that's, it is a way to make money if you're the PE firm, but it's not very entrepreneurial, and it's really bad for our economy. And they, they happen to pay a lot less in taxes as well. Yeah, well, which hurts all of us, ultimately. Um, so one of the terms that you'd mentioned there, and one of the things that I'd, I'd sort of first come across looking at this was, was a bust-out. Could you explain for me what, what exactly a bust-out is? It's an old term. Um, a bust-out basically is you suck all the money out of a company, and then you leave. So it's a mafia term, actually. <laughs> and I think it was first used by the mafia. If you make all the money out of your business and then you uh, set fire to it and then the insurance pays you. Um, that's not, PE doesn't do that. Uh, but a PE firm will sometimes suck the life out of a business um, and then leave it. So um, one way that I got in, uh, did some very good reporting on Mitt Romney when he ran for president in the U.S. against Obama and lost is in my book, there was a, there's a chapter, Profit and Plunder, and it's intentionally about Mitt, and of course he was running for president. And it took a look at some of the companies he, his firm, made the most money from, and Mitt ran Bain. So the, and, and unlike most private equity firms, he actually owned Bain, so he, it's his responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I found multiple examples in which he made 10 times as money, or Bain made 10 times their money, and the company went bankrupt. To me, that's a bust out. If you're buying a company, then taking dividends on top of that, um, and then the company goes bankrupt two years later, and that happens over and over and over again, that's a bust out. And obviously, there's a pattern. Uh, Romney, when approached about it, said, um, this makes me sick, sick at heart. I would never do that. And yet, he's done it multiple times. Um, and uh, throwing some modesty aside, um, I never spoke to David Axelrod or President Obama, if he needs to, but I've, I've never spoken to either of them. But I've been, it's been reported that they use that chapter in the book as the basis for their attacks, their attacks against the business record of Mitt Romney. And it worked because there's not a lot of defense. But that's yeah. a bust Okay. I mean, that's kind of ironic that they used that chapter, given that Barack Obama, I think, took more money from Wall Street than any other presidential candidate in history. Um, well, that that's true. That's a well. There there is some truth to that. And then Wall Street really turned on him too and made his presidency heck um, after he bailed them out. So yeah, there's some interesting ironies in all of that. Yeah, it really is. I mean the 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 this the idea of the mafia the mafia term of a bust out is uh, is funny just because um, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Lucy Commissar. Um, she's a financial investigative journalist um absolute hero like really really does her work and does her due, uh, due diligence on things but she uh she basically described the the wall street wall street as like a, a mob as like a cartel so it's it's funny that the, the these terms that, that are have their have their basis in in yeah in the mafia are, are being used to describe the practices <laughs> Yes, it is. And in some ways, it's a legal mob, but in some ways it is. Mm, yeah.
So you you sort you mentioned quite early on there that the media are not really reporting on uh, the sort of yeah the, how how damaging that these practices can be. Um, they're not really interested in vilifying the the folks on Wall Street as much as they are um, Facebook, Amazon, Google um, for many times for what I believe to, at least to be legitimate reasons that they're sort of criticizing them. But you you pointed out that they kind of are ignoring this massive massive part of of the reason that yeah there's been a lot of large companies that have been bankrupted ultimately be and well yeah because of because of yeah the what private equity have done things like yeah we've mentioned numerous ones like sears toys r us is like that's close to my heart i i i remember toys r us as a kid you know <laughs> but why do you think that there is no reporting on it do you think it's uh like a case of the journalists or don't want to delve into all of the sort of complex financial things? Do you think it's uh, like it's oh, they don't see it as being glamorous or, or click worthy or whatever? Or do you think there's like a level of um, sort of establishment, like protect the, the, the ruling class sort of thing going on here? a simple answer. And I do think the, the veneer is starting to come off the field. Um, uh, just for example, NBC uh, did a recent uh, special on homes that take care of kids who are basically orphaned or abused and how private equity firms started running the largest chain and they put less money in and they let violent guards beat up kids. And they got the some of it was because it's private equity. It's the model, you know, stuck out more cash, put in less guards. Um, so so I, I do think that there is more critical reporting of private equity than there has been in recent years. But generally, I, I, I guess I think first it's a little complicated. It's not as simple a story as, as saying, hey, um, Amazon uh, takes ideas from small companies, sells the products themselves. Um, you know, and basically steals from the small company. Um, that may very well be the case. It's an easier story to tell. It's still an important story. It's an easier story. Um, like you said, I think there is also an establishment mentality, including within the media. Um, so I think uh, they're not looking to eat their own. You know, Amazon, Apple are not their own necessarily, um, unless you're talking to Washington Post. <laughs> um, but mostly it's not their own. Um, in fact, in some ways, they're battling them. Uh, the, the, the mainstream media, business media, um, you know, they, they, they like to make heroes out of people. That's what's happening with GameStop, right? That, that you guys are doing, or not you guys, investors in GameStop or AMC are flipping the model, uh, or cryptocurrency is flipping the model. Again, I'm not speaking up or against it, but it's flipping the established model. Business media generally, there are definite exceptions, but generally uh, they're looking for access to these people, to the people who run these firms. They say they make money. Well, then I guess they make money, so they must be smart. Um, they're not looking to attack them. They're looking to get access to them. Um, so, and, and the publications, most of the major business publications, without naming names, 
you know, tend to want to go with the go, go with the flow, not attack. And especially if you own a publication and you're friends with these guys. Um, again, the e it gets easier to attack a tech company. It, it sounds like I'm maybe I should be a tech lobbyist. <laughs> but it's easier to attack somebody from the out who's from the outside who you're not buddies with than somebody who um won't want to be mean about it somebody who's palling around with jeffrey epstein and you that's a person that's harder to attack yeah yeah i mean to to, to attack any of the institutional narratives becomes you become very quickly ostracized, I think, is the, the problem. Um, I, there's there's that scene in the film, The Big Short, that kind of springs to mind where um, the two guys, uh, the two brothers, whose name escapes me right, right at this moment, but they go in to their friend at the Wall Street Journal and they're trying to explain, like, they've, they've you know, seen some financial corruption that's going on with the, with the subprime mortgages. And essentially... Uh, they're like, yeah, can you need like this is this is the biggest like fraud on Wall Street history. You need to write a piece about this. And the guy goes, well, what do you want me to do? Write a piece that says we're all fucked. You know, I'm I've spent years building up these relationships with people at these firms, and then they'll never speak to me again. Um, so uh, it's it's definitely yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely know. some of that. It's definitely mm -hmm. some. There's definitely some of that. Again, I do think over the last five years, and actually, if you did go back. I guess nine years to, to Romney's run, there has been more and more criticism. Uh, there has been good work done. I did some of my book. It's definitely been advanced since about private equity firms investing in nursing homes, and those nursing homes not taking very good care of their patients. Um, uh, surprise billing has become a big issue uh, where because private equity firms basically own the companies that control a lot of ambulance, a lot of emergency rooms and hospitals. People have criticized that, and they do look at the core, which is the private equity, what's the genesis of it. So there has been more criticism, and I do think, a little hard to say because I'm not objective at this point, and, um, and I'm in the, you know, I still cover them amazingly, um, but I do think that uh, the general person who follows business, maybe the person who might watch this podcast, would probably not walk in saying, they may not know the ins and outs of private equity, but I don't think they would necessarily say, oh, those guys are good. Um, they may, they, they probably know something's wrong, but they don't know what it is. Um, that was the same case in the late 80s, and then Milken became the bad guy. Um, I'm not sure there's a specific bad guy today. Um, there's many, but I'm not sure there's one person who symbolizes that. But I think people do know that it's generally there's something wrong going on. So I do think the perception has changed. Okay, well, it's good. I mean, I do sympathize occasionally with the with the journalists in a way because um, I speak to like a lot of people I agree with and people I just want to ask about. But I also speak to people that um, I disagree with, especially like on some like really fundamental things. And I have to find a way to crit criticize their position, but not have them storm out. <laughs> You know, you've, it's it's about it's it's like a it's a weird balance. I'm still figuring out how to do it. I was saying quite early in in doing doing this as a career, but uh, it's 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 difficult to balance like uh, critiquing with trying to get them to talk to you because then that's also that's also because you know if you're not getting 
if you don't get to speak to people, you're not gonna you're not gonna really get the the true information. Like you you need the you need to find a way to walk that line in a way. So it's 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 difficult to do, you know, especially when they have so much power, and especially when it's you know the 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 has become like less and less firms over over the sort of past twenty or thirty years, where you know one goes bankrupt and then they subsume them, like another company subsumes them, and so so you're you're talking about just like a handful of large players, and as soon as you're like ostracized by them, that's you've no chance basically of, of getting access. So yeah, well, it's difficult it's to get access if you're, you know, doing access journalism. To be honest, but, the, the, well, but still, yeah. people like to talk. And, and, you know, I, I, I think, or I, at least from my experience, people, some people, many, like talking to people who they think will be provocative, who they think will be interesting, even if they don't agree with the views. Of course, you don't wear the views on your sleeve either. But um, there, there's room for access journalism, but there's also room for people who don't want to report that way, but still want to get real information. I think there, there's plenty of people just speaking journalism about journalism who like being gadflies, who like being, who like, as long as you're willing to share something, or, or happy to, to learn about something and share some information. You know, I, I, I think that people who want to be in the information flow and actually respect you for knowing something. There's also heads, you know, there's also heads of firms who just want the people who's going to kiss their ears, and that's okay. That, that's a different kind of reporting. Yeah, yeah. It definitely is. <laughs> so, uh, for the, the the final thing I kind of want to ask you about, and we've we've sort of, we've touched on this already, is that um, the thing that led you led me to your work initially was, as I'd mentioned before we started, that um, people in the GameStop community had had identified um, specifically Bain Capital, actually, and the the companies that they have targeted um, over the and taken over, and then subsequently have gone bankrupt, um, obviously. Mitt Romney is distraught about this. I'm sure he's crying in his very expensive shower that he'll have bought with it. Um, but um, that they essentially the the allegation that was being made by um, a couple of posts on Reddit was that the the reason for Amazon's success and massive growth over the past twenty years was because many of their competitors have been bankrupted. And that they have sort of subsumed the retail market, and they've just sort of expanded as these companies have gone bankrupt. Do you think that the, the Amazon would have ended up in the position that they're in um, without that? And do you think that there's any possibility that there was coordination between Amazon and the firms going long on them, short on the the companies that were being bought over by private equity and the private equity firms? Um, as a way for Amazon to just succeed and slowly take over the entire economy. <laughs> they're, close, they're getting closer to that. Um, so I, it's a good question, and I think it'd be interesting if no one's done it for someone to re really deeply report that question. Because mm -hmm. I'm not sure what I would. I, I don't want to give a knee-jerk answer. I am sure that private equity firms owning many retailers who have struggled and failed and not building real um, platforms on the internet has made it easier for Amazon. I'm sure that's made it easier for them. Now, would their dominance have happened anyway? 
I don't know. I think that's a good question. It'd be interesting to ask people who are real experts and on the inside to see if they would believe that. It'll be theory, but to see if they think that's the case. It certainly made their job easier. You know, that's for sure. I mean, their biggest rival is Walmart, you know, which had bought yet and has a good internet presence. Walmart has a bigger physical presence. Amazon has the bigger online. Amazon's trying to get more physical because they feel if you buy their groceries uh, at a Whole Foods, um, then they've got you for everything else. Um, or if you watch a television program on Amazon Prime, they've got you now. You're, you're, their app is on your phone and it's on your TV and you'll, you'll, everything will go through Amazon. Um, and their biggest rival is Walmart. It's not private equity. Um, but, yeah, it's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I think it's a very good question. Do I think there was some plot that got them here? No, definitely not. This doesn't help private equity firms. Private equity firms didn't back Amazon. They wish they would have. Um, so no, I don't, I don't think there was any conspiracy here, uh, neither, neither between long and shorts or private equity firms, but uh, likely did this make Amazon's domination easier? For sure, I, I would agree with that right away. Um, you know, could it have happened with if these were independent companies? I don't know. Bezos is pretty forward thinking. I'd be I'd be interested to hear what other people would say about that. Mm, okay. Well, um, if anyone's interested, I will put that the the Reddit post that the the DD that has acute, has uh, alleged this in the description below, so people can check it out. Um, I'm not sold on the grand conspiracy yet, but. Uh, <laughs> We'll see. But anyway, uh, Josh, do you want to just tell people um, where they can find you and your book and everything before we finish up? Um, thanks for having me, Josh. Uh, yeah, no problem. So, um, my book is, uh, came out in 2009, but it's still very relevant. It's called The Buyout of America. Actually, there, there, it got republished in 2010, so a slightly more recent edition. Um, but, but it's still very relevant to a lot of the stuff that's happening right now. In fact, a lot of things are playing out that were predicted in the book. Um, and uh, you can find me at www.joshkosman.com. And uh, I'm writing all the time, so follow me on Twitter. Uh, I post all my stories. And there's, there's a lot going on right now. And I think the more educated we, we reporters, investors, people, society, the better. There's a lot going on. And there's a lot of, there's, a, there's some good information, there's good reporting. But there's also some gar a lot of garbage too, because a lot is there's a lot up in the air right now. So I think the more educated people are, the better. Mm. Um, one thing, just because you mentioned GameStop, we're, we're talking a little about GameStop. One thing private equity firms are good at, which I would give them credit for, is when they see a falling knife, they stay away. So they looked at GameStop not that long ago, um, before this run up, but but not that long ago, and stayed away. So if they feel a company can't handle the debt, they will stay clear. Um, now, as it turned out, maybe they should have invested in GameStop because obviously it's done pretty well since. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but private equity guys did take a look at this. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, Ryan, uh, Ryan Cohen's takeover has been a big boon. And uh, obviously, they've, they've, they've done very well to take advantage of the, the, the run-up in the price to clear their debt now they're they're sitting on 1.7 billion dollars in cash um which is stunning uh, really um for them um they're debt free and 
spending it on a lot of uh, sort of they're, they're, it seems they're trying to turn themselves into a tech company rather than a gaming company, uh, which is a very, very interesting transformation. But um, yeah, so if they're looking for a lobbyist, you said you wanted the tech lobbyist job. So um, <laughs> anyway, um, I will put links for everything that uh, we've talked about and the, your Twitter, your book, etc., in the in the description below. But um, yeah, thanks. It's it's uh, it's been educational and and a pleasure to be able to chat. The animal dragged a child around its enclosure. The child had fallen into that enclosure. Officials are now defending their actions. ABC's Alex. A few things I am not. I'm not a cat. I am not an institutional investor, nor am I a hedge fund. There's no panic selling. These people, you know, they may have bought at $4, sat through $400, went back to 40, went to 350, back down to 110, and they have not sold. All they've done is bought more. And there's no answer for that. There's no, they, they, you know, it, it is like art of war mastery by a bunch of idiots who should know better. And they're just, they're just like, I'm not fucking leaving. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. What's been happening on Reddit and in social media and in the marketplace has never been seen before. Uh, the short 70, 60, 80% of a company, let alone 140%, I think a lot of people universally believe something is wrong there. They're powerful, they want to stock hire. It's child's play. Why ever sell into the maw of Wall Street yeah, Reddit bets. Why? 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 But everyone's wrong. It's like the big short again. Or more like the big short squeeze this time, right? So here we got the fox guarding the hen house. And one of the hens is complaining. The fox is out to kill us. And the farmer says, I'm sorry, the fox is in charge of the hen house. Whenever there is not billions, but like trillions of dollars involved in something, it I, I argue that nothing is off the table. The way they have absolutely cheated, stolen, robbed everyday people so all our hedge fund billionaire friends can get out and not get killed is one of the most remarkable, illegal, shocking robberies in the history of, in plain sight. Super Stonk and the other communities that have emerged are a hive mind, the likes of which we have never seen before. It's madness and brilliance, insanity and genius all rolled into one. It's very possible that Citadel will be gone in a few months. And, and not just Citadel, but the entire financial system has the potential to come crashing down. These crooks continue to gamble recklessly with the world economy and this could be the moment that they finally get their justice. You got maybe 10 million people doing this who now own you know probably more than 100 million shares and eventually you know they might own everything